Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Am I supposed to say thank you for that? <laughs> this did feel a little bit like a setup when I found out Ryan was introducing me. And then there was the fact that I emailed the president, President Aiken, not President Trump, um, uh, and, uh, a couple days ago and said, you know, listen, I'm, uh, I'm going to be preaching on Christianity and politics with an application toward our American moment. And uh, very quickly after that, his office contacted mine and said that Dr. Aiken would, uh, had arranged to be out of state today. And uh, they didn't use the phrase uh, fleeing the premises, um, but it had that perlocutionary effect on me. So, um, yeah, so. <clears throat> but today, um, uh, welcome to chapel on a Thursday morning, and I'm very grateful that we can open God's Word to Daniel chapter 3. Um, this is a passage that is a court intrigue. In political terms, in, in contemporary terms, it's a political drama. And often when we teach the passage, we lift it out of its context to teach the moral principles. What I want to do is I want to return it to its home context uh, today, if we can do that, and talk about giving powerful public witness, even and especially from a position of political weakness. I think our ears are probably well attuned to a message like this, partly because of the 2016 election cycle, which felt to me like a combination of a war, a carnival, and a Hollywood movie all at one time. But more importantly, I think for the past few decades, Bible-believing Christians have felt the ground, social, cultural, and political ground shifting beneath us. We can tell that something is happening, that an increasing number of our fellow citizens uh, think that our Christian beliefs, and especially our Christian ethics, are... Uh, implausible, unimaginable, even evil. And we're, we're sort of trying to search for the, you know, to figure out in this new normal, how do we give public witness? Because the lines aren't drawn like they used to be. The lines have been redrawn. And so in this passage in Daniel chapter three, we are gonna learn a lesson from three Jewish mid-level government officials who are religious and ethnic minorities in a powerful pagan empire. And they are gonna coach us on how to give powerful public witness even and especially um, from a position of political weakness. So as we walk through the chapter, I think there are four principles that are foregrounded. And so we are going to foreground those principles and, and work through them. And then I'm going to try to give an application to our own American moment. So the first principle we'll see as we read verses 1 through 12 is that they, um, these men refuse to bow to the false political god of their day. Verse one, <clears throat> so Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So you had a flat expanse and then in a striking juxtaposition to that flat expanse, you had a gold-plated or maybe solid gold idol, a false god that was 90 feet high and nine feet wide. Then in the next two verses, he tells us that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar invited a vast array of government officials, civic servants, public celebrities, and called them to gather on the plain of Dura. And here's, um, 
Verse four, a herald cried aloud and said to you, it is commanded O people's nations and languages that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time, um, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, uh, nations and languages, fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, um, you know, sometimes these stories, we've heard them so often that, you know, it just sort of passes through our ears and we don't really uh, catch the full sense of the situation. So you had a, a massive array of very important people gathered on a flat expanse, standing in front of a gold-plated idol, a false god. And among that vast array of people were three mid-level Jewish officials who were worshipers of the one true and living God. Now, this was a big deal. Uh, think Super Bowl halftime ceremony. Think uh, World Cup. So there wasn't just a speech to be made by a king and then a quick uh, sort of allegiance pledge to this statue. There was all kinds of music. There was not only Leonard Skinner, but also LL Cool J. And there was uh, not only uh, Justin Bieber, the J. Biebs, but also, you know, I don't know, Johnny Cash. There was not only Kanye, but in a shout out to our grandparents, the Lawrence Welk Orchestra. So you had all kinds of music and uh, it was a big ceremony. The spotlight was really big. And the king said, listen, I brought you all here today to worship this image. Now, it may very well have been an image of King Nebuchadnezzar. Some commentators argue that it was. <laughs> so it was, hey, I, I thought I would call an event today to, to honor me. Um, but it may not have been. But whatever it was, it was a god of some sort. And he said, and, and then there's the small matter of uh, if, you know, if you don't do it, we'll you know, incinerate you on the spot. But, but let's have fun. Let's listen to some music. And then let's bow down to this god that I have set up over the empire. And so they played the music and people everywhere bowed down. But we find out in verse 8 that therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, um, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. However, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So what you see here are two things. There's ethnic rivalry. Identify them as Jews. That's religious and ethnic, actually. And, um, and he said, whom you have set over the affairs. And that's probably a little bit of political jealousy, implicating the king. How could you have put these Jews, this ethnic group, with their despised religion over us? Look at what they believe. And they said, you've set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And so what we see is that there were three Jewish believers who are nonconformists. And they practice what is today called nonviolent direct action. Or in earlier days, just plain old civil disobedience. And it's a very powerful form of witness and they, what they did is they said, listen, when everybody else kneels to the false God, we will remain standing. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to our God. Because we would rather defy the king, the earthly king and his earthly law, than deny the cosmic king and his divine law. And so they did that. Now I want to stop for a moment and help us make application. 
Now, anytime a preacher makes application, the application is going to be further removed from the text, hopefully, than the interpretation is. I'm going to do my best to apply faithfully, but you need to assess critically. So the scriptures teach that, that human beings are idle factories. Our hearts are idle factories. We, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, as the prophets, especially Isaiah taught, that we tend to take some aspect of God's good creation and elevate it to a level of ultimacy and then sort of functionally bow down and worship that God. We tend to absolutize some aspect of creation and, and give trust and love and obedience and fear to it that should be reserved for God alone. It's a perennial human tendency. And so I think what we do in passages like this, we tend to, or I'll speak for myself, is we tend to just treat that false God as, I don't know, say false world religions. Okay, so I shouldn't be a Buddhist and I shouldn't be a Muslim. But I think we can't let ourselves off the hook like that. I think we need to ask much harder questions. There's two different ways we could ask those questions. One would be to take perennial idols like sex and money and power and ask this, when and where and to what extent do we as Americans elevate sexual autonomy and sexual freedom to a level of ultimacy that should be reserved for God alone? That we want to have sexual autonomy and freedom to do whatever we want to with our genitals, no matter what the consequences. And when there are consequences, we expect nobody ever to suggest that we shouldn't have done that. And we even expect society and government to ameliorate those consequences. Or money. To what extent do we as Americans allow our convictions to be swayed or even changed in a New York minute based on the dictates of Wall Street, the stock market, or our own wallet? Or power. To what extent do we want power, and political power especially so badly, that we will sacrifice our altars on the conviction of political gain? Another way of doing it, instead of just the perennial idols, is to ask questions about modern political ideologies. I'm, gonna, I'm not partisan here, you're gonna see. I think that God's revelation, when God reveals himself, he tends to be an equal opportunity offender. And there's no such thing as the left and the right in the United States, I mean, there sort of is. That spectrum's not so helpful. There's actually six or seven major ideologies. So we could ask ourselves a question like this. Is there an ideology that so elevates the notion of individual autonomy personal freedom to do whatever I please, that it refuses to have any social or moral norms? Or is there another form of it that grows more on the right that refuses to have any economic norms ever? Is there any ideology that elevates the nation state or an ethno-nation within the nation state to a level of ultimacy that the nation is willing to be unjust toward people who are not a part of the nation state, who are not a part of that ethnic group? Are there any ideologies that elevate common ownership of property and material equality to the level of divinity so that anything could be morally justified as long as it makes those things happen? Is there any political ide ideology that elevates cultural heritage and tradition to such an extent that it's unwilling to weed out the evil and the bad that's been built into that heritage? Is there any political ideology that elevates progress to the status of a deity and locates evil in cultural heritage and thinks that salvation from that cult cultural heritage are large-scale social revolutions that clear the decks and recreate a new society where humanity can be engineered to be good? 
I think we have to ask these very difficult questions that aren't easy. And then determine that we will not, as the Lord guides us and leads us and gives us wisdom, we will not bow to any of the false gods of our day. Now hear me clearly. I think we can work with people who hold to any ideologies. But as believers, Christ is king. And when and where we need to adjust within one of those ideologies or in relation to it, then we make adjustments based on Christ's kingship. So we should refuse to bow to the political gods of our day. The second principle that's foregrounded is that they refuse to bend even under immense political pressure. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a, in a, or actually I haven't, uh, let, let me very quickly finish 8, eight through 12. Um, did we read 8 through 12 yet? We didn't. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. I didn't finish reading it, I don't think. And they said, uh, O king, live forever. Um, the, the music played, and, and you said, if, if we don't bow down, we'll be cast into a fiery furnace. But these Jews, whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So then in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and a fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Well, I'll tell you what. If you're ready, we'll give you a mulligan. If you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and, and, and you fall down and worship, you, um, then good. The image that I've made, then good. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So notice what happens here. That when the king immediately finds out, he is enraged. His facial expression changes. Why was he enraged? Because when little people speak their truth to power, it shows that the people with the most power really have little power. It revealed that the most powerful man on earth could not coerce a worshiper of the one true and living God to bow down to a false God. It revealed him as ultimately powerless before the cosmic king, the one true and living God, and he was enraged. But in the next verse, his rage turned into, as best we can tell from the text, a kind of baffled inquisitiveness. And he said, he said, you know, did, is, is, is this really true? I mean, are you serious, Clark? Did you, didn't you hear that if you didn't bow that I was, you know, I, I, I tend to be a little dramatic, but I'm going to burn you alive if you don't bow. And then he said, he said, tell you what, we'll have a do-over. All right, we'll play the music again. Johnny, come on back up. You will get the strings and uh, play a song for us. And we're gonna do this thing again and you can bow and that will save you because you won't, for example, get burned alive and then it'll save me and it'll make me seem like I have power again. And so what did the guys do? Um, did they follow the American way? Did they become unhinged with bulging eyes and veins popping out? Did they demean and degrade the king? Did they tell lies about him and partial truths? Did they take 
all of the people who are like the king and take all of the bad attributes of them, put them together in one personality profile, and then claim that every person who was in any way associated with the king was thoroughly morally reprehensible and has nothing good that could be found in them. They, in, in fact, they didn't. What they did is they decentered themselves, they carried themselves with composure and dignity and strength, and they recentered God. And they said, listen, we can't even have a discussion on this one. They were respectful to him. They kept calling him O King. But they said, we're not going to worship the false God. And if you kill us, you kill us. We think God will deliver us. He certainly is able to. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. We'll never bow to a false God. And so they didn't bow. And they didn't bend. And so it, it is exceedingly difficult, you'll find, not to bend when the pressure is placed on you and you're in the middle of the spotlight. When there's a lot of pressure that comes to you by people outside of the church and people inside of the church, demanding that you conform to some secular ideology, some secular platform. And what we have to do is not bend. We probably won't be incinerated on the spot, but we will face corporate pressure from major corporations like ESPN and Facebook and Google and many more. We'll face legal sanctions probably because of our moral convictions. We'll face social ostracism and, uh, you know, social media flash mobs, people who are under the deep conviction that the best thing to do uh, when, uh, you know, in any situation is to tweet furiously. We'll face these sorts of things, and we've got to pray for God to give us the strength not to bend. The third thing we're going to see is that they accepted the consequences without becoming unhinged. Verse 19. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he spoke and commanded them that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans. That was the first problem, they wore turbans. And their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And so what you see here is you see men uh, who were meek. And by meek, uh, we mean incredibly strong with their strength under control. They realized truths that were later taught in the New Testament, where Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 12, basically all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul said to Timothy, you know, in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, that uh, the context, the normal context of Christian ministry and life is one of opposition. The opposition will come from within and from without of the church. And the only way you'll be able to stand strong is if you cling to the word of God. Did they take their cues from the radio talk show hosts or the TV pundits? They didn't. They didn't become unhinged. I think there's a tendency, and I want to make application now that we've interpreted some. Let me do a little more interpretation. We'll move to application. Nebuchadnezzar was furious again. His hand had been, had been shown to be a weak hand, that he had absolute power except power over the conscience and power over human worship. So he became enraged, and he said, I want you to heat the furnace seven times hotter 
We think that's metaphorical. It just means make it as hot as it will possibly get. Crank it up. And he told his guys, his secret service guys, or whatever you call them, throw them in the furnace. And it was so hot, the furnace was, that it killed. The men didn't have time to put the protective gear on, I guess, that they would have normally worn, and they died. And these three men were thrown into the furnace, and they fell down. There's no record here of them uh, fighting. I think we would have record of that if it had happened. There's no record of them cursing, of them demeaning, of them degrading. They accepted what would come whenever it came. And I hope that God will give us the fortitude, the strength of character to keep our composure when we're being opposed. It's very difficult to do when you're in the heat of the moment and somebody is misrepresenting your position and mocking you for you not to do the same thing in return. And it is the American way to do that on the left and the right. I think on the left and the right, on TV and on radio and Facebook conversations, for some reason we feel okay laying aside our religion when we walk in the public square. Sometimes laying aside our beliefs, almost often laying aside our character. Character matters and it matters in a profound and a powerful way for a Christian. Um, Often when I talk about this, I talk about it in terms of civility and I get smacked back in two ways. One of them is civility is for people who are soft, penny-waisted, sissies, kind of phrases that I hear in response. Civility is strength. It is strength under control. Anybody can respond in kind when they're attacked, lied about, and slandered. But a Christian has the Holy Spirit who can enable them to stand strong and not respond in kind. It's speaking the truth powerfully, not backing down from the truth, but giving the respect and dignity to the other that they deserve because they're created in the image and likeness of God. The other kind of smack back you'll get is you'll, uh, you know, you'll talk about civility and people will say, oh, you're just part of the PC regime. It's a very easy retort. Uh, Civility is very different from political correctness. As Bible-believing Christians experience it, political correctness is sort of hiding your convictions so that you can be in conformity with whatever is the latest faddish ideological code of the day. Civility is the opposite of that. It is never hiding your convictions, but unleashing them in a way that is worthy of the gospel. This is a unique moment for American Christians that if we can refuse to take our cues from people of power in Washington, D.C., on the TV outlets and the radio radio shows, we can refuse to take their cues and we can cut our own wake, all of a sudden we might be able to speak with clarity and strength of voice and integrity. This is our moment. So let's embrace our era. It's a toxic sort of an era, but let's not be bitter and resentful and lose our religion over it. Let's not slouch away and withdraw. Let's, let's embrace the moment. And then finally, the fourth foregrounded principle is that God turned their witness into a display of his kingship. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste. Kings don't usually rise in haste. That, that's undignified. The commentators on this ancient text say that this is a marker that something big has just happened. And he spoke to his counselors and said, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he said, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Now we're not exactly sure what's going on here except for the fact that God is present with them in the fire. 
He's either present with them through an angel, through a spirit, or maybe through his son. The, the Aramaic text leaves the mystery of it there. I like to think this was the son of God, but I can't say that for sure. But nonetheless, God was present with them in the fire. And the king was so astonished, he arose in haste. Kings don't arise in haste. They're dignified. And he rushed forward and said, look at what's happened. <clears throat> then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And what you're going to see now is a series of what I can count as, as uh, five ironies. And the first one is that he refers to them in that verse as sons of the Most High God. And he does it with, as a term of honor, which is exactly what got them in trouble in the first place. They claimed that they had a Most High God that they worshipped, and they refused to worship his political God and his image. Then he says, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king and the counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. So in this story, and in Babylonian culture, fire was supposed to be a symbol. In this story of Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, and in uh, their folklore at large, a symbol of one of their gods. But in this story, fire became a symbol of the God of Israel, and if his presence and power with them in the fire. Then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his messenger and delivered his servants who trusted in him and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. So in this new decree, he praises the God of Israel and legitimizes their religion publicly. I don't think you understand the kind of social, cultural, and political whiplash this caused in front of an entire government. That the most powerful man in the world had been shown to be powerless in the face of the God of Israel, and that he was willing to, willing to turn on a dime, at least for a moment, and at least in this way. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, their houses shall be made in ash heap, a little over the top, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. So now he just goes ahead and says it to the Babylonians that there is no God who can deliver like the Jewish God. Could you have imagined this happening if you didn't know the Bible based upon the beginning of this story? The story was set up for you to think there's no way this could happen. And look what just happened. And then in verse... Uh, 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So instead of, uh, for example, killing them, he promoted them. Now the lesson, the takeaway, interpretive takeaway here is not, most emphatically not, that every time we give public witness in the face of opposition, we'll gain a visible public victory. I think the combined testimony of scripture is that often the opposite happens. We don't get a visible victory. Hebrews 11, verses 30 through 40. Approximately half of the stories mentioned are ones in which people got sawed in half, tortured, they remained destitute and afflicted, tormented. So that's not the primary takeaway here. The primary underlying takeaway that's universally applicable is um, that God will work in and through our public uh, witness um, powerfully, even in the face, or even in a context of, uh, of political weakness. You know, when we pass away, those of us in here who are American citizens, 
when we pass away one day, when we, or when the Lord returns, we will meet him as Americans. Not primarily as Americans, because our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, but we will meet him as Americans. American may not be the primary aspect of our identity, but it is an absolutely significant one and an inescapable one. And so why don't we pray that the Lord will give us the wisdom and the humility and the courage to carve out a path of faithful witness in upcoming decades. We don't know what we'll face, but pray that the Lord will help us to be faithful witnesses. You know, uh, years ago, Congress adopted as our national motto, One Nation Under God. And uh, we are one nation under God in one sense of the word. It's a theological fact. Just like Saudi Arabia, China, and Russia, we are one nation under God's cosmic kingship. And so we can say a hearty amen to that. But then in another sense, we are in fact not one nation under God. We are a divided nation who's in some ways is under, under God's moral norms partially, in many ways not, some of whose people worship the Lord Christ and some who do not. And I think it should be our desire in this moral sense of the word to do everything we can as public witnesses to help our fellow citizens embrace Christ as king and embrace God's norms for human flourishing so that our nation can be in more of that sense, one nation under God. We don't do this to be winners. God doesn't call us to be winners. In fact, in the world's eyes, we're often losers. Often our best witness is when we're worldly losers. That's when we're persecuted. And so why don't we pray that the Lord will help us to obey him and to refuse to worship false political gods, to refuse to bend under pressure, to refuse to lose our religion in the public square, to accept whatever God gives us, and to allow him and expect that he will work in and through our public witness. We do what we do not to win, per se, I mean, hopefully we gain ground. But we do it out of witness and obedience and as a preview of his kingdom. Because we know that the day is coming when the Lord Christ will return, when he will institute a one-world government and a one-party system with him at the head, and justice will roll down like the waters. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship the king together. And our world will be characterized by a universal worship of Christ and the peace and order and justice and delight that flows out of that. And so in light of that coming kingdom and as a preview of it, let's pray that the Lord will help us as Bible-believing Christians be at the heart of every good movement of social, cultural, and political concern. Let's pray together. Father, we pray to you in the name of your Son and uh, by the enabling power of your spirit we come before you and we recognize corporately today that you are the cosmic king you created the heavens and the earth and one day you will re renew and restore the heavens and the earth and purge it by fire getting rid of sin and its consequences so that one day we can dwell in an unbroken unified worship of all tribes tongues peoples and nations father before your son we pray that in, in this time between the times, between his first and second coming, that you give us the wisdom, uh, the humility, and the strength to be faithful public witnesses, even and especially when you place us in a position of, of a political weakness. Father, we pray in the name of your Son, who alone can, can uh, enable us to do this, and by the power of your Spirit, who similarly 
alone can enable us uh, to do this. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.